Well, good morning. With your copy of God's Word, turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we're continuing our study through Luke's Gospel together. Today we arrive at the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem in preparation for his crucifixion and his resurrection. Luke chapter 19, we'll begin our reading together in verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent to his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt. Its owner, owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And he said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the coat and put Jesus on it. And he was going, and they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray today uh, to receive blessing from the reading and hearing of your word. Father, as uh, your word is opened, may our hearts and minds receive your truth. May these cause us to lift up our thoughts and our affections to the Lord Jesus Christ, and may it, through your Grace, Father, for your glory by means of your Spirit, through the abiding presence of your Son, cause us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. So this morning we we see Jesus, a very familiar story for most of us. We see Jesus riding in, and it's known the triumphal, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem in preparation for what we know will be his week of, of death, the crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. Of course, they think that he's coming to be a great conquering king. They think that he's coming in to overthrow the Romans. They, th- they think that he's coming in to physically take the seat of David and to reestablish the, the, the kingdom in the way that it had been during the time of David's reign before, during the glory days of Solomon. And that's not what's exactly going on here. So let's take a look and see the importance of the event that's occurring. And so as Jesus is preparing to go into the city, there is um, a a specific declaration of the place where he is. And so he's approaching uh, Mount Olivet, known as the Mount of Olives. We see that in verse 29 and in 37. This is very significant for Old Testament reasons. So first, the Mount of Olives in the Old Testament. Now, I know for some of you, you're going to wait for the slideshow to tell you everything I'm about to say. 
it will not do this. And so you're going to have to pay very close attention and just make notes. And so uh, Jeffrey is not forgetting to push the button. He has no button to push for what I'm about to say. And so the importance of the event. So the Mount of Olives in the Old Testament. So if you were to go back to 2 Samuel uh, 15.32, we would see that the uh, Mount of Olives was actually a place of worship uh, during David's kingship. It's one of the places that people would go to worship God. They didn't just worship God specifically at the temple in Jerusalem all the time, though that was where all the chief uh, events would take place. But the Mount of Olives was also considered a place of worship, and David actually worshipped God there. If you were to go back to Ezekiel and look at some of his prophetic words in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, we would see that it is the place where Ezekiel saw the glory of God departing from Jerusalem proper, from the city, and his glory moved and rested on the top of the Mount of Olives in one of his great prophetic visions. It was an eschatological vision. It was a vision about the judgment of God and the justice of God and the eventual salvation that God would bring through all of that. And there's a picture of that, that salvation not being found in the sacrificial place of the temple in Jerusalem, but rather that salvation being found by some event occurring on the Mount of Olives. And we don't get an interpretation of that in Ezekiel. We just see that that's what he saw. He saw the glory of God departing from Jerusalem and resting on the Mount of Olives. And then more expansively, we have uh, the prophet, the minor prophet Zechariah, identifies the Mount of Olives as the place of the revelation of the Messiah, where the Messiah will make himself known to the world as the Messiah. And this is a very interesting prophetic thing. And so if, if you do have your copy of God's Word, flip to uh, Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. I want to read through some of the section of this prophetic word that Zechariah has. And we'll see how it relates to the fact that Jesus is declared, and we'll see in a moment, Jesus is declared king by the people at the Mount of Olives. It's a very significant thing that occurs here. And so Zechariah chapter 14, it says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken from you and will be divided among you. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished, and the half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from the east to the west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, the valley of the mountains which uh, will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light, the illuminaries will dwindle, for there will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but will come about at that evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea, and it will be summer as well as in winter." And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord is the only one. His name will be the only one. And all of the land changed from a plain, uh, changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel to the king's wine presses. And the people will live in it and there will no longer be any curse for Jerusalem will dwell in 
security. And so there's this declaration of this great, mighty, conquering king who will overthrow the pagans and will overthrow the wickedness of the nations and will reestablish the, the pristine reality of Eden and return to the people their Sabbath rest of that magnificent seventh day that is holy, that has no beginning and has no end. And as e- evening and morning is not declared there in Genesis chapter 1, there will be this reestablishment of the sacred space and the sacred place and the sacred worship and the There will be no curse, and it will be because a king has been made much of and established and declared there at that site, at that place. And the place where Zacharias says that's going to happen is on the Mount of Olives. And it's not coincidental, it's not accidental, it's not forced, it's not forgery. Luke, as an investigator, is recording the events as they took place. And Jesus came into the city by way of Mount of Olives. And the people, as we'll see here in our text, they throw down their cloaks and they sing a song of him being the blessed king who comes in the name of the Lord there at Mount Olives. Now, the mountain didn't split in half and didn't rise up to heaven and the valleys weren't made low and rivers weren't flowing from the east to the west. And all of those things that Zachariah spoke of did not literally physically happen it's very unlikely that those things are going to literally physically happen. Uh, This is the way prophecy works. Prophetic, apocalyptic language is usually intentionally over the top and representative of some other deeper spiritual reality. And so what is it that Jesus is preparing to do here from the Mount of Olives? Well, if we continue with our look at the Mount of Olives and we see it in the New Testament, Luke in in another place, chapter 21, verse 37, speaks to the reality that every night Jesus would leave the city and he would go back to the Mount of Olives. That's where he would stay during the night. That's where they were staying. Mount of Olives became a staging platform for everything that happened crucifixion week. So Jesus would go into the city and he would preach or he would flip over the changing tables or he would answer questions or he would challenge authority or he would do whatever it is he was doing during that week leading up to his crucifixion. And then at night he would leave and he would go to the Mount of Olives. That's where he was. It's not unexpected when he goes out to the Mount of Olives to pray his prayer and have the disciples pray with him and they keep falling asleep and he has the drops of blood coming down his head. It's not, it's not odd that that's where he is because that's where he's been all week. He keeps going back there every night to the Mount of Olives. The king has been declared the king, just like Zechariah says, on the Mount of Olives. And it is from there that he's launching this ministry and this work and displaying the proper kingship that he has. We also see in Acts chapter 1 verse 12 that it's the place of the ascension. It's from the Mount of Olives that Jesus ascends into glory. When he leaves the spirit with his disciples and the angels come and tell them, this Jesus that you've seen go up, you'll see return in the same way. This declaration is made to them on the Mount of Olives. And so there's a significance to the event that's occurring. Jesus coming into the city by way of the Mount of Olives and being declared king there. It's a fulfillment of a great many things, only a few that I've shared with you this morning. Now, there's some other Old Testament pictures, though, that are also fulfilled. The chief one in this particular story of the triumphal entry is the fulfillment of this concept of this unridden cult. I want you to see this picture and this type. Jesus gives them this command and says, I want you to go to the village. I want you to find a cult tied, never been ridden, and take it. If somebody asks you about it, tell them the Lord needs it, and they'll let you have it. And there's a, an unusual thing that's occurring here, a cult is an animal that's a work animal in this time and in this culture. It's um, an animal that's either supposed to carry a burden in a field 
or supposed to carry the burden of a human being for transportation. It's a work animal. That's what it is. And in this case of having never been ridden, there's a, a picture in Zechariah 9.9 and also in Genesis 49.11 of the importance of the great king, the great Messiah, the one who's coming to reign and to rule one day, uh, engaging in, with an animal like this, particularly in Zechariah 9.9. But interestingly, and this, is, and this is not to be missed, I think it's missed by us often because uh, uh, if, if we're just honest with ourselves, we, we don't lack the kind of familiarity we need to have with the, um, the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system and the use of animals and the sacredness of creatures and how that played into certain kinds of worship. But the Old Testament lays out for us in Numbers uh, chapter 19, verse 2, and again in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 3, that an, uh, a work animal, an animal that was considered, a, uh, old guys used to call them a beast of burden, um, not to be confused with Mick Jagger song, but the, 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 the concept of an animal that was to, to carry a load, whether it was a human or an actual physical load, a beast of burden, if you will, a, a work animal, that had never carried a burden, that had never been used for its main purpose, was considered a sacred animal that could be used in sacrificial systems. It was considered a clean, sacred animal. And so you have this laid out for us in Numbers. You have it laid out for us in Deuteronomy. There's a few references to this concept in the Levitical law as well. And so there's a a beautiful picture being painted here of Jesus riding on an unridden colt, a sacred animal, an animal that would have been worthy of participation in the sacrificial system depending on its age, of course. There are the age restrictions in the law. But the concept that an animal that is a beast of burden that hasn't borne a burden is considered somehow sacred in the Old Testament law. It's considered clean in a way other animals aren't clean. It's considered worthy of temple and tabernacle service. This is the animal that Jesus rides in on into the city to be declared king on the Mount of Olives. He is the animal, if you will, that's about to be sacrificed as a clean animal for the sins of the world. And he comes into the city following in an odd way the Old Testament law of cleanliness for sacrifice. It's an animal that would have been worthy of being used in worship. That's the one that Jesus used. It wasn't just any old cult. It wasn't just any old animal. It wasn't just some, you know, hey, just bring me yours that you've been using for a while. It's one that was considered sacred and worthy. That's what Jesus rides in on. And that's a very important point that is often missed here, is that Jesus is making a picture. He's making a picture of what it is that he is about to do. Now, also here, and this is intriguing, and Luke is the only one who does this. If you go and read this story in the other Gospels where they declare the triumphal entry, we don't see this. And so it says that they brought, in verse 35, they brought the cult to Jesus... They threw their coats on the colt. And then watch what it says here. It says they put Jesus on it. In the other Gospels where it relates to the story, it just says Jesus sat on it. Sounding like he is the one who physically exercised the action of sitting. But in Luke, he makes it very clear. They, the disciples, the crowd that was with him, put him on the colt. They picked him up seated him on it. 
This is a picture of enthronement. This is a picture of enthronement. Someone being placed on a throne. You have a sacred animal that's worthy of sacrifice. <clears throat> you have a sacred animal that is considered clean in the law system. You have someone who's making an entry into Jerusalem during a holy week and being declared king. And rather than placing himself as many false kings and as many lesser kings have done, he is being placed as king onto this cult. He's being enthroned as he comes into the city. Now, of course, the people wanted him to be the wrong kind of king. But the reality of it is is that the hearts of the people are, we want this man to be our king. We're going to place him on this animal. We're going to sing his praises as he comes into the city. We're going to declare him to be the great king. And it's an interesting thing that is occurring here. Now, what we need to see from this, though, is the greater reality, and that's that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. When they are laying out their cloaks and their coats in the road so that the animal is not on the dirt, but rather on their clothing, this is very similar to what the crowd did for Jehu when he was made to be king in 2 Kings 9.13. They laid out their cloaks for him as he walked up to the throne and he walked to the place of becoming king. Jesus is climbing and ascending the Mount of Olives is very similar to King David doing so. The difference is the circumstances. It's a great celebration going on here with Jesus. When King David did it in 2 Samuel 15.30, he was in agony over the rebellion of Absalom. And that wicked occurrence that was happening there and the near splintering of the kingdom that was taking place. And the brokenheartedness that he had over Absalom's rebellion. And it says that he walked up the Mount of Olives to the place of worship and those walked with him and they wept bitterly because of what was going on. No one is weeping here, at least not yet. They're singing praises for the king that is coming. But friends, I want to say to you this morning that Jesus is greater than the picture of any clean animal, of any lesser prophet, of any lesser king. He's greater than all of these things. Jesus is the fulfillment of the types and shadows that we see in the Old Testament. I've only given you a few. It would take weeks upon weeks for us to unfold all of the references that we could find in the Old Testament about what is happening here as Jesus comes into the city to be declared king by the people. It's entire psalms, that whole sections of psalms that talk about this. This declaration of the great Messiah who's coming, the great king who will sit on David's throne. And friends, Jesus is greater than all of that. He's greater than all of that. And so the people begin singing a song in verse 38. It's pulled from Psalm 118, particularly verse 26 is listed here. And it says, They began shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Very similar, if we were to go back and look to the song sung, At the beginning of Luke, at the birth of Jesus. The second half of that is. It's very similar in language to the Magi coming and asking the question, where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? And so the people, now imagine this just for a moment. The people 
who are in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's overwhelmed for Holy Week. The people are in Jerusalem. Roman occupation is still very present. There's heightened security because of the extra number of people that are there in the city. There's been rumors swirling that this Messiah-like figure who's been doing these incredible miracles may be coming to the city. Obviously, because Jesus had sent word ahead that there would be an unridden colt tied for his use when he got there. And he comes into the city, and the Jewish people that are following him begin shouting and singing in Roman-occupied Jerusalem, Blessed is the King who's coming in the name of the Lord. It's almost like they're trying to start a fight. It's almost the feeling that you get from them singing the song. You know, it's like the little kid. I don't know if you remember this, if, if, if you're old enough to remember playgrounds at schools, you know, when people used to have those. It's like the little kid who has recess the same time his much bigger brother does. And so he goes out into the crowd of the bully kids and he starts taunting them. Because he knows that they're not going to do anything. Well, because my big brother's here. They're thinking, this is the conquering king. He's going to overthrow Rome. By the very power of God, the breath of the word, he's going to overthrow all of our enemies. He's going to defeat them. And we're going to once again have a... Great is the king! The whole thing could have ended right there. And Roman law, Roman policy, that's, it was, that's treason. You can't declare somebody else to be king besides Caesar. You can't do that. Not going to work. They will have, they'll let you practice your religion. They'll let you have your sacrifices. They'll let you ignore their gods. As long as you do just a couple of things. One, and, and, and probably in this order. One, pay your exorbitant extortionist taxes fees. Two, don't start any political upheavals. As long as you could go that way in Rome, they, you know, you might be a second or third class citizen and you might be taxed near to death, but they're going to let a lot of stuff slide. But you don't come into the city when there's a whole lot of extra people that are from your particular tribe who aren't Roman citizens necessarily and start talking about some guy who's riding in being your new king. Not a good idea. But that's what they did. And when people begin to wonder, how's it could, how did it escalate so quickly from Jesus coming in and being celebrated at the beginning of the week to hanging on a cross, dying by the end of the week? Well, from the Roman perspective, this was already it. Remember, even Pilate asks, are you a king? Rumors have been swirling all week. That's how it started when he first got there. And so they sing this song of Jesus being king. And then I want you to notice... What happens? As we make the transition in the sermon, the second point is God's people must not be silent. Verses 39 through 40. It says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. It's a call for silence from the Pharisees. The Pharisees do not want for this to go down this way. And there's a couple of reasons. One, Let's start with the theological, spiritual reasons. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They have been in opposition with Jesus 
almost his entire ministry. And here lately, if you go back just a few pages and read the last few chapters again in Luke, and you see the significantly negative interaction he's had with the religious leaders everywhere he's gone, they do not like this guy. They are imaged in what we saw last time as that delegation that said, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's the Pharisees. It's them. That story is there as a transitional story into this one because there's a group of people that do not want Jesus to be king very specifically in this story, and it is the religious leaders. It's the Pharisees. So there's a spiritual reason why they want Jesus to tell his disciples to be quiet because we don't agree with you. We don't think you're the Messiah. We don't think you're the king. They don't need to be singing these false songs to you. But they're also uh, opportunists. They've gotten in pretty decent with the Roman authorities. Many of these Pharisees have gotten pretty well off because as much as they would deride the tax collectors, they were making great profit off of the way circumstances were. Out of one side of their mouth, talking to the people about the need of the Messiah to overthrow their oppressors, and out of the other side of their mouths, making deals and agreements with their oppressors so life would be a little easier for them. There's nothing new under the sun. Politics has always been politics. They do not want war with Rome. Especially being led by a false messiah in their mind. We don't want this. This is going to start a fight that we don't want to have picked. <laughs> this is going to cause a lot of problem, a lot of turmoil, a lot of circumstances. We need a little more, we need to tone down the rhetoric and we need a little more compromise. Wow, that sounds like a speech somebody probably gave last week. And so Jesus says to them, <clears throat> if, I tell you, if these become silent, if these people become silent, the stones will cry out. All of creation will acknowledge me as the king that I am, is what Jesus is saying to them. If not one living person declares me to be king in this moment, it will not negate the fact that I am king. And creation is groaning under the weight of human sin. And I am here to set my creation free. And you say, Philip, he didn't say all that right there. They understood because they're experts in the word. Jesus was making a very direct reference to a very unfamiliar little passage in a little book in the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 11. There's a declarative reality there in Habakkuk about the eschaton, about the end, about the coming judgment of God. And using apocalyptic language and highly metaphorical poetic language, Habakkuk begins talking about a structure. And he starts talking about how the stones will cry out to the rafters of the roof. And what's being called out is this declaration. The greatness and the glory of, the, of God. His judgment, his justice, <clears throat> and all of these sorts of things. It's almost, when you translate it from the Hebrew into the Greek, Almost verbatim the same phrase being used. The stones will cry out. 
Jesus is calling these men's expertise to where their minds will go back to this place of he is referencing himself as the great eschatological conqueror. He is referencing himself as the great eschatological glorious representation of the Most High God. He is demonstrating himself as the one who is the great one who will overthrow. But if you know Habakkuk well enough, you know that a great part of that prophetic work is against the Jewish people for their denial and betrayal of the covenant. That there's a great promise of hope, a great promise of healing, but after a great weight of judgment and justice is brought out by God's hand. And so for Jesus to pull a reference out of Habakkuk right here in this moment, hey, you need to tell your followers to be quiet. No, if if these are silent, even the stones will cry out. You know, like Habakkuk said. That's going to have a lot of bite for these guys because they know that story and they know that prophecy and they understand what Jesus is saying there. And then Jesus, finally he approaches Jerusalem. He saw the city. And it says he began weeping. It says he began weeping over the city. And he asked of the city, he's talking to the actual city. He says, if you had known. Isn't that the story of almost everyone's life? (laughs) If I'd have just known that that was going to happen that day that they left in the car. If I'd have just known that that was the last time that I was going to be able to talk to them. If I'd have just known that that uh, really weird three dollar uh, share stock where they try to deliver you stuff over the what the internet by way of ordering things online, who, who's ever going to do that? People aren't going to stop going to stores. That's never going to make it. If I'd only known to buy it when it was three dollars and ten cents a share, now that it's fifteen hundred and eighty dollars a share. If I'd only known, it's the story of a lot of people's lives. And Jesus looks out over the city of Jerusalem. He says, if you had known. If you'd known what? If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. Now, friends, isn't that really what we all want to know? In our heart of hearts, in our minds of minds, in the deep part of our emotional selves, isn't that what we all want to know? What makes for peace? I'm at war with myself. I'm at more war in those relationships around me. This world is in chaos and in turmoil and in fear and in despair. There's glimmers of joy in the midst of the ever sorrowful reality that every day that I live is a day that I'm moving closer to my own death. You say, Philip, that's weighty. Friends, that's real. That's real. In these days that we've had with conversations about the quarantine and the virus and social distancing and whether it's good or bad or isn't good or isn't bad, I've read and listened to a lot of Christian people that I know, I respect friends and and acquaintances and, and whatnot, and I've noticed a common theme in a lot of the conversation, especially about people who, particularly with this virus, have gotten sick. 
And there's kind of a default, well, you know, some of those people who've gotten sick and died, well, they were dying anyway. Because they had pre-existing conditions. Seems that that seems to be the greatest group that it impacts, is people with pre-existing conditions. Well, they were dying anyway. Friend, I hate to break it to you, but that's the story of all of us. You're dying anyway. You have a pre-existing condition. It's called sin, being born in Adam. You're dying anyway. From the moment that you take your first breath, it's the first breath towards your last one. Because we are broken people who live in a broken world that is under the curse. And what all of us want is to know the way of peace. That's what we want. How can I find comfort and joy and a lack and a loss of anxiety and have it replaced with ease and comfort of mind and calmness of heart and spirit in a turbulent world? How can I do that? And people try all kinds of things to do that. Medication, exercise, meditation, losing themselves in work. Their accolades, their achievements, physical accomplishments. People find a host of ways to try to find that peace. And Jesus stands over this city and he says, If you had known, even you, the things that make for peace. Here's what's so sad about this. Jesus is weeping. Why is he weeping? He is the physical manifestation of the nation of Israel's God. And they don't know him. He is the physical manifestation of Jehovah. And they're about to kill him. Because the message that he's bringing them is one they do not want to hear. And he's weeping. This is genuine. This is the human Jesus. He is broken hearted over this stiff necked people. He says, if you would have just known. But it's been hidden from your eyes. This weeping that Jesus has here is an allusion back to Lamentations. Um, you know, I was, I was going to read it. I, I, I want to give, I usually don't do homework assignments. I want to give everybody a homework assignment. It's very short. Sometime today, early this week, whenever. I want you to read through the book of Lamentations. Because what Jeremiah declares about the fall of Jerusalem and their captivity because of their rebellion and their stance against God, their unwillingness to yield to the message of repentance, their unwillingness to yield to the call of God to return to the things of God and properly bear the image of God, and the pain and the sorrow that he experiences as he watches the city ravaged and the people are gone and there's death and destruction everywhere. Jesus reaches back to that in this weeping over the city. It's an illusion. It's a throwback to lamentations. 
particularly Lamentations chapter 3 in the latter parts of the chapter. Why? Why do we see these similarities? Because the people that he is weeping over are about to go into a greater bondage than the ones in Jeremiah's day because they have rejected a greater messenger than Jeremiah ever was. Jeremiah was a great prophet of God. But he was just a man. He was not the God-man. The one who would die for their sins. And he brought them a message of repentance. But he did not bring them the same kind of new covenant message of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And Jerusalem is about to reject its one true Messiah. And Jesus weeps over them. He mourns their hard hearts. And then he declares to them a judgment. Days are coming. For the days will come upon you. When your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. And surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you, still talking about the city, to the ground. And your children within you, that's the inhabitants of the city itself. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Days are coming. Now, I know that there is... A double meaning to what Jesus is saying here. But we need to start with the primary meaning. Jesus is actually prophesying the destruction of the temple and the ravaging of Jerusalem that's going to occur by A.D. 70. And if you've ever read any of the accounts of what happens there when the Romans come in and they destroy the temple and they ravage the city and the things that happen and the way people respond to each other, it, the, 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 the madness and the chaos and the carnage that takes place this sums it up pretty well what Jesus says here. But it has a second meaning. And it's a reference to the future judgment. Friends, there is a final judgment that will be total. And if you are in that place that is to be destroyed, there will be no escape. There will be no escape. And Jesus declares to them that their overthrow will be total, complete. He makes reference to them as the children within. All of the stones of the city will be toppled and all of the children within will be consumed by this coming judgment. There's some Old Testament cross-references that you might want to look at regarding that Psalm 137, verse 9. Hosea 10, 14. Hosea 13, 16. Nahum 3:10. There are many others, but these are the most robust. Psalm 137 making reference to David praying that God would dash his enemy's babies against the rocks. This is the picture that Jesus is painting, what's about to happen. 
And why is this going to happen to them? It's going to happen to them for the same reason it will happen to anyone as we move toward the eschaton, as we move toward the final fulfillment of all things. They rejected Jesus as king. He said, notice that this is happening to you. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What visitation? When the God-man Visit it with you. Christ Jesus himself has engaged you. He's encountered you. And that overthrow will be total. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And so friend, the scripture makes it very clear. Today is the day of salvation, declares the Lord. It's appointed for man once to die and then comes the judgment. You cannot encounter the living Christ and walk away unchanged. You will either double down in your rebellion against him or you'll be overwhelmed by your sin and your need of deliverance and salvation And you will declare in song like these did, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There's no neutral ground to stand on when it comes to acknowledging and engaging King Jesus. There's just not. There's just not. Jesus, all these years ago, marches and rides triumphantly into the city only to die on a cross and then be raised victorious over death and sin and hell through his resurrection from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father where he has taken his seat and makes intercession for his people. And now he calls by the Spirit through the gospel men out of darkness and into his marvelous lights that they might make known his excellencies throughout all of the world. And friends, this is the call to us. We are called to yield to King Jesus. And when we have yielded to King Jesus, we are to declare his glory and praise. God's people cannot be silent. We have to make much of Christ and him crucified and him risen. This is what we must be about. We cannot be like the ancient city of Jerusalem with the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords in their presence physically. They could eat with Him. They could drink with Him. They could lay eyes on Him. They could touch Him and they did. In a few days they will touch Him violently. And they rejected him and they cast him aside and they longed for something better than Jesus. And friends, that is the demonstration of the great idolatry of all human hearts. We are offered by God the very best and we reject it because we want something better. And friends, I tell you, there's nothing better than Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. Not one thing is better than Jesus. And there's a call here. Jesus weeping over the stiff-necked hard-heartedness 
of the people. And friends, perhaps you're listening. As you know, we've done the analytics on who's watching and who's listening, who's commenting on these virtual services. I'll just go ahead and tell you, there's not a lot of ethnically Hebrew people that are attending to these services. And so you may be thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not Jewish. I wasn't part of that. I'm Gentile. When he was weeping over the city, my people weren't even there. We were off worshiping some moon god on a Scandinavian mountain somewhere. You know, We didn't even know anything about Jehovah or Jesus. Friends, this stiff-necked hard-heartedness expands globally. It's not just for one people. Paul makes this really clear, Romans 1.18 through 3.20, that the sin of mankind is a sin of mankind. It doesn't matter what race you emerge from. We all have Adam as our father. Therefore, we all have death as our companion. We have rejection of the things of God as our birthright. We are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so when Jesus weeps over the hard-heartedness and stiff-neckedness of people, he weeps over all of mankind. Why? Because all of mankind hates. You say, Philip, this language is too strong. Friends, it's not close enough. I don't have the human language to tell you properly how it is. Friends, mankind, left to himself, hates the things of God. When we should be imaging the glory of God. The world's broken, broken place. And Jesus stands weeping over it. Would you not know? Had you not known? And friends, here's the thing. In just a few days time, from this event, from this moment, He is going to make known to them the way of peace. His death on the cross. His resurrection from the dead. Friends, it's still the way of peace these 2,000 years later. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ entering triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives, the place of the revelation of the Messiah, the declaration of the place of the King, and weeping over the brokenness of the people. Weeping over their hard hearts and their stiff necks. Father, may your grace fall on us that our hearts would be soft. Hearts not of stone, but of flesh given to us by your grace. Father, may your mercy be on us that our necks would not be stiff, but they would be bent and yield it to King Jesus. Father, may our mouths be open, singing the song, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, do not let us be silent. But let us speak and let us sing the glorious praises of the name of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.